encourage you to turn Philippians chapter 1. And if you notice, there's always a little change going on around here, isn't it, Grace? The, 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 the poor drummer has been caged in even more now. You can't, if you can't even see him back there, I don't know. But uh, always trying to make improvements. And you see somebody walking around with an iPad. They're actually adjusting the sound. we got a whole new sound system, and they can adjust it. And they're just trying to dial that in. So actually, Ben's got back there. He's in control. So he can, like, turn me off, like, right now with his iPad. Uh, but we're thankful for that. Thank you for their, your giving toward that. It's just above and beyond our budget, but we really needed to improve a lot of our sound, a, a lot of uh, video stuff and like that, so we enhance our worship of the Lord, so we wouldn't be distracted by screens that are jumping around and sound that's going out and those kind of things. So we're thankful for that, and uh, we're, we're glad that, that it does help us be able to more effectively communicate God's Word and help us all worship and not be distracted as we worship together. Well, we are in Philippians chapter 1, and hopefully you've turned there in a copy of God's Word, whether it be on your tablet or phone or in a hard copy like I have up here. Uh, but we are studying the book of Philippians and uh, this marvelous little letter, which the theme is Finding Joy in Christ Alone. Uh, and the title of the message this morning, based upon these four verses here at the end of chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, is just one thing. Just one thing. And I know often you probably think that it was just one thing when I'm preaching instead of many things, but uh, just one thing is the title. And up to this point, as we've studied the first 26 verses of the first chapter of Philippians, um, Paul has dealt mainly with his own heart, his own desires, his own behavior, uh, his love and prayer for the people of the church of Philippi, who he loved greatly. He had visited twice at this point. We'll visit him later when he gets out of prison. Um, his focus on the spread of the gospel, uh, no matter what the, the motive was necessarily of other, other people who were spreading the gospel, his commitment uh, to whatever happened to him, whether he would die or live, whether he would be freed from prison or be remain in prison, uh, but his commitment to Christ alone in all things. So Paul's kind of really been reflecting on his own life and using himself as an example and, 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 and praying and expressing his love for the church of Philippi. But now, in verse 27, he turns his attention to the Philippians to exhort them and their new heart to produce actions that should flow from a new heart. So he, he, he kind of goes from turning inward to turning outward. And he's very direct in his exhortation of the church at Philippi. And that's where we come this morning as we begin to look here at this exhortation uh, in verses 27 through 30. So join me as, uh, as I read these out loud, uh, these verses 27 through 30. Paul speaking and writing to the church at Philippi. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Lord, we come to our time of worship together uh, where we look at your word. And Lord, we are at your mercy to not only understand what you are trying to say to 
the church at Philippi and we're trying to say to them through Paul, but we are at your mercy to try to understand what you're trying to say to us and, and Lord, what you want to see happen in our lives. Lord, for us to apply the truths that we will see this morning. Lord, we need your help not only for understanding, but for transformation and for application of your word in our lives so that you might be glorified. So we pray now that you would do just that. You would open our hearts and our minds to bring about understanding, to bring about change, so that you would be glorified. In the name of the risen Christ we pray. Amen. Well, how many of you here this morning would uh, admit to seeing a movie that came out in 1991? Now, some of you weren't born in 1991, but came out in 1991 called City Slickers. All right. Okay, we got a couple of brave people that would say, no, I'm not promoting everything about the movie City Slickers. Um, but there's a movie that came out called City Slickers, and it starred Billy Crystal. And, and he basically played a guy who was going through a midlife crisis, who was uh, trying to find himself, I guess. And he and some of his friends uh, found some renewal and some direction in their life by going on a cattle drive expedition, kind of go like to a dude ranch. That's what they want to do. They, well, we can find our, what we, our purposes in life as we, if we, as we approach the late 30s, early 40s by going to this dude ranch and we get on this cattle drive. So I, I love this one scene in the movie where Billy Crystal, who played a guy named Mitch, was with a guy named Curly who was played by Jack Palance. And Jack Palance is just a perfect guy for Curly. I mean, just kind of rough and just tough and just skin kind of just weathered. And he just looked like an old cowboy. And they're riding down, along out in this cattle drive just kind of slow. And Billy Crystal's next to him, Mitch, and then here's Curly. And they're just riding. He's asking questions and Curly's just giving him some wisdom for life. And as they ride along and just rough and tough, yeah, and he's Mitch and just 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 a great it's just, he does a great job of playing this this Curly. Well, they're they're right alongside and then and then Curly says this. Do you know what the secret of life is? And at that point he does this. And Mitch, who's playing Billy Crystal, goes your finger. And he goes no. Just one thing. Just one thing and if you discover that one thing nothing else means anything so of course Mitch says well what's that one thing and Curly says that's what you gotta find out (laughs) well what's your one thing Mitch discovered it was his family and that, that, me, that for him, he found meaning in life, not in purpose in his job and people recognizing him, but he found that his family was important and that was kind of his one thing. Well, Paul, a God through Paul, gives the Christian his or her just one thing right here in our passage this morning in Philippians 1.27. Uh, he gives us one thing. So let's turn our attention here to this just one thing. And, and, and really, in a sense, God answers the question, what, what's, the, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And he answers it through Paul by just saying this. Just one thing. Just one thing. That's the answer. Well, let's look here. And, and to help us understand this passage and kind of structure the passage so we can get the most out of us, we're going to be looking at two admonitions to follow so that we might embrace the just one thing. Uh, for the glory of God and fulfill, the fulfillment of his will in our life. So the first admonition is understand the charge of just one thing. Understand the charge of just one thing. Look with me at that first word there in verse 27. Only. Now all your translations will say that except for the NIV. 
And I do not know why it says, whatever happens. I have no idea, because the word is actually, it's, it's mono, monos, which means what? One. And in fact, the word monos here in, 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 in the grammar actually means just one thing, alone. One demand. So if you have your NIV or whatever, and I'm not getting on the NIV here, but just you can just kind of put a line through that and put one thing. Because that's really what it means. I don't know where that went in the translation. But it's, just, it's clear and it helps us understand not only this verse, but I really believe the rest of Philippians. I think this is maybe the key verse in understanding the rest of the book. So, so one thing, one demand. Paul has just told them that he's not for sure, certain whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die, whether he's going to remain in prison or where he's going to be set free. But whatever it is, if I can just tell you, it's just one thing. One thing. One thing. If you don't do anything else, do just one thing. Well, what's the one thing? Well, the verse, rest of verse 27 tells us. Look at the rest of verse 27. It says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the just one thing. And if you don't get anything out of the rest of this morning, get this one. The just one thing is conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Now notice this word here, conduct. Uh, Some translations may say the ESV says manner of life. Um, The King James actually says only let your conversation. Now you think, well, he just must be mean words. No, the word conversation back in the 1600s in England meant your life, your manner of life, your way of living, your conversation was not just your lips, but your entire life. Uh, it, it actually, the, the word, in, in the Greek, we get the word politics and police from this word. The, this word conduct, or your manner of life. And, and the people of Philippi, and this is what Paul's getting at, were offic- getting at they were officially citizens of what? Of, of what? The Roman Empire. This is a word that was used at this time in the Greek to, to speak about um, the Roman Empire, that you were, you were citizens of this Roman Empire, but yet Paul, writing to these people in Philippi, wanted to stress that you were citizens of something greater, that they were citizens of something greater. And if you flip over there in in chapter 3, verse 20 in Philippians, look, look what he says here about their citizenship. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was calling these followers of Christ in Philippi to live in this world as citizens of heaven. Yes, you're a citizen of Rome, but in a greater way, you're a citizen of heaven, and you need to live in that way, which supersedes your citizenship in Rome. So this word conduct, uh, um, uh, you can even hear politics in the, it's politumui. You hear politics in there? Politu. All right, that's where we get the word politics. Your citizenship, your, 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 your role as a citizen. And he explains this, that he wants to live in this, for them to live as, as citizens of heaven by the, the, the next phrase, worthy, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this is a theme throughout many of Paul's letters. This conducting yourself, living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore I 
the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which is, you have been called. And then Colossians 1.10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, I, I love the way that Paul puts this a little bit differently in the, his, his letter to Titus. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that you, you, they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. I love that word, to adorn. To, to live in a manner worthy. To, to adorn. When you adorn something, you dress it up. You make it look nice. And my parents are here this morning and uh, from Kentucky, and they're leaving again. They came Monday, and they're leaving this Monday to head visit my other brother in, uh, in North Carolina. But um, my dad and I had the privilege of trying to adorn something. Uh, when it was somehow it was just me, I was home for college, and my brothers weren't home yet, and our neighbor gave us a Christmas tree, and my dad's shaking his head. We even made up a song for it: "Oh scrawny tree, oh scrawny tree, how scrawny are your baby?" And they had something there, a perfect tree for dinglings, and it was just the littlest tree. And our neighbor's so proud to bring us this, so we tried everything to adorn this tree. I mean, everything. We put the lights, the tinsel, and I think by the time you couldn't even see there was a tree into there. And we try to adorn it. We try to make it look great. We try to make it look worthy to be a Christmas tree. But in a greater way, Paul not only calls the church of Philippi, but the churches he writes to, to conduct you, to live in a manner worthy, to adorn the gospel, to make the, lot, the, the, the gospel look great. That's what he was calling them to. Make the gospel in your daily life as citizens of Rome, yes, but as citizens of heaven, to look great. In the midst of his imprisonment, we saw that Paul, and we see here, that he, he, he desired not to shame Christ in the gospel. And he showed, that, he showed this by rejoicing that the gospel was being spread. And it was all about Christ. We've seen him do that. He models that. Now he's calling these Philippian Christians to do the very same thing. Remember, no shame, only fame for Christ in the gospel. That's what it means to be worthy. Live your lives worthy of the gospel, to bring fame to Christ. As citizens of heaven, they should model good citizenship here on earth. Well, why is this? Why should they do that? Why should they live their life in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens of Rome? Yes, but ultimately as citizens of heaven living as citizens in the, this, this province of Rome called Philippi. Why is this? Well, if you look in chapter 2, jumping ahead a little bit here, um, Paul sums this up in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Look there with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Be a good citizen. Why? So you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent in this crooked and perverse generation, the Roman Empire, which would also relate to the perverse and crooked generation we live in now all over this world. Why? So that, so that Christ will be exalted. You appear as lights in the world. Now, Tim, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in his first uh, letter to Timothy, he encourages him to pray for those in power. And who was in power then? Nero, who was burning people in his gardens that were Christians. 
He says, pray for those kind of people. Pray for those in authority. Pray for your government. And, and I, I really think that this, it, it, it definitely in First T- Timothy, but here even he says, do not, all things without grumbling, complaining, or disputing, can speak about, quit being a whiner about our government. And it's definitely what it says in First Timothy. You live a peaceful, quiet life in the midst of this generation, in the midst of Nero being a terrible leader. In the midst of being part of a, a, a Roman Empire who did not love God. We spend an awful lot of time whining about our, go- our government. Man, can you believe that? I mean, I can't wait till the next election. We spend a lot of our time waiting till the next election and do nothing about what really counts often. We need to be good citizens. Yeah, we, we, we have a chance to speak out. We have a chance to do things right. But I think here he's saying we need to be good citizens. We need to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach that's the kind of citizenship that we are to be about and that's what Paul is exhorting these uh, believers in Philippi to do so this imperative conduct yourselves in in a manner worthy of the gospel listen very closely this is why I think it's the key to to the rest of Philippians is the overarching imperative now some say just down through 2.18 I think you, you can make a case it is the overarching imperative through the remainder of the book this informa- the information following this imperative to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel expands and explains what it means to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. That's what it does. And this is the imperative. And the rest of the, 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 the epistle is an expansion and an explanation of what that means. Well, not only does Paul charge these believers to just one thing of conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of, of Christ. Notice what else he writes in verse 27. Look there with me, with me. So it begins with, So that whether I come and see you or remain absent. Now this points back again to verses 21 through 26 where he's struggling. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He's going to free or, 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 or be in prison. He, is, he shows his desires. He wants to come because he wants to come and, and be with them so that um, he can... Help them grow in the faith. But whether he does or not, whether he does or not, Paul's saying, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whether I'm there or not, whether I'm there physically or not, you need to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, you know the type of people who don't do these kind of things in all kinds of life. When somebody turns their back, right? Somebody turns their back on them, and I, I remember this as a, in, in school. The teacher would leave the room. What happens when the teacher leaves the room? All right, anarchy breaks out often. I remember as a, as a uh, I was the great culprit of this in elementary school. A teacher leave the room. We're supposed to be taking our nap back when you used to be praying in schools and you read the Bible in schools and stuff like that. You also took naps in schools when you were first grade. So we'd have our little mats, and the teacher would leave the room. We're supposed to be napping, and Guess who wasn't napping and was up jumping from desk to desk and bothering everybody? That was me. Uh, I knew exactly what happened. I was one of these people who didn't when, when she left the room. Uh, as an athlete, can't tell you how, how, t- t- I can't tell you how many times I saw guys when we were doing push-ups, right? And we're supposed to go one, two, and then, the, and then the, the coach turns around and the guys are like this. They're looking for the coach, right? You guys see that? What are you laughing about, Corey? Do you do that? Corey! All right? So, and, and he's not doing push-ups. He's not doing what you're supposed to do. Oh, the coach turns around. Oh, man, they're just going after it. I mean, unbelievable. But as soon as the coach turns his back, all right, they're not going to do it. How about in your workplace? 
as long as the boss isn't standing over you. I mean, when the boss stands over, hey, you're, in, you're into, you're doing what you're supposed to do. I'm not saying you necessarily, you know people like this. Maybe this is you, I don't know, I hope not. But as soon as the boss walks out or the boss is out of town, start coasting. Start, start doing things differently than what you should. And Paul is saying here, when this, 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 this imperative command to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel is to be all the time, whether I'm there or not. Whether I'm looking over your shoulder or not, God's there. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel all the time. All the time. Well, if you're motivated for the right reasons, cutting corners when someone's not looking should never, ever happen. Ever. Conduct should be dedicated, or or conduct should be dictated by faithfulness to Christ, not the presence of a a particular person or leader. Followers of Christ, here this morning, God charges you to just one thing. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ all the time. Just one thing. Just one thing. Well, it's now that we have this understanding of the charge of this one thing. Uh, we should be asking this question. I kind of allude to it. Well, what's that look like? What does it look like to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel? What's, what's that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked, and if you didn't, I'm going to answer anyway. And that comes to our second admonition here this morning to, uh, that we're, we're, we need to follow to embrace this just one thing. It's execute the call of just one thing. Now, there's two over, overarching things Paul points to here in execution of this, and that's just through verse 30. We're going to see more of what it looks like in the rest of Philippians to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But we're just going to look at a couple of things that he points out here in this particular paragraph in Philippians uh, to execute this call. The first thing is conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm. Look with me in verse 27 again. So that, and we just dealt with that whether I come uh, or remain, or come and see you remain absent. It says, so that I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Notice the words there, standing firm. Uh, this it means cannot be moved. It means to hold your ground, to be steadfast. It's a picture of a soldier that's holding their position regardless of the opposition. No matter what, they're not going to retreat. They're going to stand firm. They're going to hold their position. That's the picture here that Paul paints. He says, standing firm. And this word, you can even see it in the English. It's in the present tense. It means it's to be continually standing firm. Not just stand firm one time, but always be standing firm, Paul says to these believers. And, and the words that follow help further describe what it means to, be, to stand firm. They, they're really adjectives that help un- understand standing firm even better. It says, in one spirit, there's a common purpose. Now, a lot of people debate, is this the Holy Spirit? Is it our spirit? Um, I think it's hard to, as a believer, it's hard to distinguish that in this sense, that if your spirit, all right, your inner being, in, in a sense, um, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, but he really is, I believe, talking about their spirit together, the spirit of the people they have a common purpose. Of course, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he said, then he says, that in one mind, so one spirit, one mind, it literally means one soul, uh, an attitude or an orientation of the will, 
one. It's, it's, it, you see unity here, one spirit, one mind in this standing firm. They're unified in their standing firm. And then look at this, this word here, striving together. It's actually, or the NIV says, contending as one. It's a compound word, <coughs> son athleo. And it means with athletics. That's where we get the word athlete. With athletics. So what's that mean? Competing together, teamwork, arm in arm, hand in hand, striving together. It's, it was actually used as, as, for wrestling. Like team wrestling. Now we don't have necessarily, we have team wrestling. This guy wrestles this guy. This guy wrestles this guy. You don't, like the whole team doesn't get out there, do they guys? Here's our wrestlers right here. And go at it each, all of them together, right? No. They had like that kind of wrestling. It was like group wrestling. They just get in there as this big pile up. And, and the, that's, this word was used for this. They were striving together as a team. And that's pretty intense. And Paul uses these athletic illustrations because he knew they would, they, they would understand that. So it's everyone competing together. There's no one on the sideline. There's no one doing their own thing. I can tell you, when you play a team sport and you got one person that wants to do their own thing, it doesn't work. It does not work. It ruins the whole team. When one person decides, hey, let's break the huddle. All right, here's the play we called. And you got one guy doing their own thing. You have all 11 in the game of football, even all team sports, it's like that. You have all the people working together. I, I love what Jay uh, Motier says concerning this kind of unity when he writes, the church which is experiencing unity must be a church without passengers. A church that is experiencing unity must be a church without passengers. No passengers only participants. If we're really unified, there'll be no passengers. Because everybody will be body and they'll all be, will be striving together with one mind, one spirit, standing firm, striving together. I guess my question for all of us and for you this morning is are you a passive passenger or a passionate participant? Which one are you? A passive passenger or a passionate participant. Paul says, if we're going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, we will need to stand firm with one mind, one spirit, striving together. That's what this looks like. Well, not only are we continuing to be standing firm with one spirit, with one mind striving together, but look, the, the, the stand, the standing firm, it's a purposeful stand. Look what it says. For the faith of the gospel... What does the church stand for? What do we strive together for? We've got to have a purpose. When you have no purpose, it, it, there's, if there's no goal to reach, there's no reason to stand together. But he says there is a goal. It's for the faith of the gospel. You see, Paul knew what the goal of the church was, and it's evidenced by Romans 1.16 when he says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek. It was for the faith of the gospel. It wasn't just aiming at nothing. It was aiming for the faith of the gospel. We are to be standing firm, Paul says here, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not for social justice. Not for political activism or opinion or political party or pro this or pro that, although these may flow from 
standing for the faith of the gospel. They flow from them, but there's a difference. That is not standing for the faith of the gospel. Being a political activist, being pro this, pro that, being against this, or being for social justice. That's different than the gospel of Jesus Christ, although those things may flow from standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's important. That's important differentiation. People are giving their purpose for their whole life for those things. And all the while, the gospel is being neglected. And if the gospel comes in, guess what? All those things that we have concern for get taken care of. It's not for this or that. It's for the faith of the gospel. We spend millions of dollars and countless hours to fight for something that will never change the heart of mankind. Now, please don't hear me. You did, please don't, I did not say don't feed the poor. We should feed the poor. Why? For the faith of the gospel. We, we should stand up for things that are wrong, like abortion and slave trafficking and, and sex trafficking all over this world. Those are wrong. Why? For the faith of the gospel, not for those things. We need to spend millions of dollars and countless hours on the presentation of the gospel. And when that proliferates our country and our community and our world, what a difference that'll make. There's a purpose to stand together for. Anything else is futile. Well, not only to, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm to, in order for us to execute this one thing, but secondly, we're to conduct our, ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by fearing not. We're to stand firm and we're to fear not. Look at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Notice that word there in verse 20. Alarmed, your translation may say terrified or frightened. It means to be intimidated. It means to be skittish. And skittish in this sense. Horses become frightened. Or you know about this, don't you? They get frightened and they become kind of skittish. Now you don't want to be around a horse that becomes skittish. Because they can hurt you. You see those big, yesterday in the, in the, in the was it the Preakness, I guess? Um, racing, those, those horses are huge. They get skittish and you're in trouble. Now this, is, this word was actually used for a stampede. They would come so frightened, you get a bunch of horses get skittish, and all of a sudden you've got a stampede. And you're, you're in big time trouble. There's, that's how frightened they are. And this is the word that Paul uses here. Don't be alarmed. Don't be terrified. Don't become skittish that leads to crazy behavior. And he gives two reasons not to fear. First of all, it's a sign. Notice that phrase there in verse 28, which is a sign. Uh, your translation may say it's a proof of. Uh, the believers living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and the p- persecution they're receiving for this, for this living in a manner worthy of Christ is a proof or a sign for something. Well, what is it a proof or sign of? Well, he says two things. It's twofold. Look there what it says in verse 28. Destruction, it's a sign of destruction for them. Their enemies. It's a sign of their lostness and their end, which is hell. Those are enemies of the gospel. They're lost. They're without salvation. They don't know Christ. They don't experience his forgiveness. And, and, and they hate those who do. And they're persecuting them. And, and they're, he's just saying, don't fear them. It's actually a sign for their end. But secondly, it's but, he says, it's a sign for their destruction, but of salvation for you. The followers of Christ and their right relationship with God through Jesus in their end is heaven. 
When they're rightly related to God, they're in this heaven. It's, it, it reminds you of your salvation. There, there's such evidence in the, the lives of these Christians, he's saying, when we are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, there's such evidence in our life that it brings assurance to them that God is changing them from the inside out. It brings assurance of their salvation. So I guess the question for us is, do we live in a manner worthy of the gospel in such a way that even non-believers can tell that you've been with Jesus? They said that about the, the, the disciples, the apostles, early in Acts. They could tell they'd been with Jesus. I love that. I want people to be able to tell I've been with Jesus. And he's saying that it's, even, it's a sign to them. When they see that you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's a sign of their destruction, but of salvation for you. Do we live in that kind of manner? Do we, do we, we live in such a way that even non-believers are either passively or actively, actively persecuting us? This is one reason that he gives not to fear. That this persecution is a sign. It's, it's proof of, I'm in control. And salvation is happening. And those who don't trust, there's an end in their life as well. And that's eternal separation in a place called hell. Well, not only should they not fear because of it's, it's a, sign, uh, uh, a sign for those, those things that salvation is happening, but the second reason Paul gives not to fear is it's suffering is a gift. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Notice that, that first phrase, or, or not the first phrase, just the phrase, uh, right, for, it, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Now the word granted there is a, is a compound word and part of the word is the word charis where we get the word grace which means gift. And Paul says there's two gifts he wants these people to remember so they won't fear. The, the first gift is believe. He says it's been granted it's a gift for Christ's sake not only to believe so that, that's one gift all right and it's actually attached to the end of verse 28 where in verse 28 says, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. The ability to believe into salvation is actually a gift from God. And it's all over the New Testament. That it's a gift from God. And the word believe here is actually in the present tense, indicating a continuing, ongoing belief. This gift is a, it's not a one-time thing. Hey, I believed on Christ then, but... When that happens, when you believe, when this gift is given to believe, that believing continues throughout your life. It doesn't stop. You just keep believing. You keep trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it impacts every part of your life. So he, 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 that's what he's saying here, that this is a gift. Well, not only is faith a gift or belief a gift, look at the second gift he points to. And, and we like that gift, don't we? Do we like faith unto salvation, believing unto salvation, and a belief that continues on in our life. Anybody don't like, doesn't like that? We, we do like that. We, we all raise our hand. We like that gift. But here's the second gift. To suffer. We don't like that gift, do we? Hey, thanks for the first gift, God. We like to believe. It's been granted us to believe, but we don't like it's been granted us also to suffer for his sake. You can keep that one. But Paul's saying that's a gift. And in James it says, all good gifts come from the Father of lights. From the good God who always gives good gifts. So somehow this is a good gift. And this word suffers also in the present tense, indicating a continuing, if you thought just maybe it's a one-time gift, it also is an ongoing gift of suffering. 
Just great, just a great sermon this morning, isn't it? Thanks, Paul, for the encouragement. We get to keep on suffering. Now, the scripture clearly teaches this all over the place, that it's God's plan that we suffer, uh, even as believers. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, if you encounter various trials. Help me here. Does it say if? It says when. It says when you encounter various trials. Also in 2 Timothy three twelve, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. And that says will. We will be persecuted. There will be difficulty. There will be suffering. And not only is suffering a part of God's plan and a gift, but it brings good things. It brings some good things, and I'm going to blow through these. We're not going to put them up here. It brings maturity, James 1, 2 through 4. It brings exaltation and rewards, 1 Peter 4, 13. It brings assurance of salvation, 1 Peter 4, 14. It brings others to Christ, Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Paul was in prison. We saw that, right? And people were coming to Christ because he was in prison because of his suffering. And then the Acts 5, 41, it brings glory to God. Are those good things? Suffering brings all those things. God uses suffering for all those things. The gifts of believing and suffering are also connected here. God keeps granting the gift of faith or belief even while we are suffering so that we can stand firm and have no fear. You see that? He gives this continuing gift of belief, of faith, so that we can stand firm. So that we can suffer in a way that honors him. We shouldn't be alarmed by our opponents or fear their persecution or our suffering. Why? Because God has granted it so it makes us more like Christ and he is glorified in that. No reason to fear. Now look at verse 30. There with me. Last verse. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And notice that phrase, same conflict which you saw in me. It's, what tense is that? Which you saw in me. What tense is that? Past tense. When would they have seen this in Paul? He's talking about past tense. Now remember Acts 16, we looked at this when we began the book of Philippians. Paul goes and plants the church and shows up in, this, uh, and shows up in, in Philippi and he has to go out. There's no synagogue, so he goes outside the, 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 the sea a little bit and there's some women that are, that, that are gathered together talking about the things of the Lord. And there's one lady called Lydia. And it says the Lord opened her heart that she might receive the things that Paul was saying. And she was converted. She became a Christian. She, she trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. And then right after that, he goes and he, 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 he cast out this demon from this girl that these guys were using to make money off of. And her life has changed. Now, how did those guys respond to Paul when he cast this demon out of her? Well, welcome to town. Right? No. They were mad. Look what it says in Acts 16. 22 through 24, the crowd rose up, not only these guys, but the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore the robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Where had they seen him suffer? They saw it right in their own city. They saw Paul suffer. He's just re- helping them remind, experiencing the same co- conflict which you saw in me. Now maybe not to the same degree, but they're being persecuted. So you saw it happen to me. It's, it's part of the li- this life. And then he goes on at the end of verse 30, and now here to be in me. Where is he right now? He's in prison. He just uses an illustration. There is suffering, but it's a gift from God. 
Paul in his past and his current suffering presents himself as an example of embracing suffering as a gift used by God. Therefore, they have no reason to fear their opponents. There's no reason to fear. Why would those who know Christ ever have a reason to be alarmed or intimidated or fearful by their opponents? You see, the enemies of the gospel do not control the destiny of this world. Who does? God does. The media does not control the destiny of this world. The secular scientists, psychologists, wealthy, powerful, the government, on and on, do not control the destiny of this world. Paul says, no fear. There's no reason to fear. Well, God through Paul calls the Philippian followers of Christ, and all those here this morning who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he calls us to execute the call of just one thing. And the one thing is this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we do this, Paul says, by standing firm, right, with one mind, one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel and fearing not. Why? Because it's a sign the salvation is happening and there's two destinies and also the suffering's a gift. That's how we do it. That's how we execute the call to live a life worthy of the gospel. Well, as we close here, let me ask you this question. Do you know what the secret of life is? Just one thing. Just one thing. And once you discover that one thing, nothing else means anything. And God through Paul says this, the one thing, only conduct yourselves worthy worthy, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. By God's grace, always by God's grace, always empowered by him, we can conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we'll see that fleshed out throughout the rest of this wonderful epistle. There's great hope that we can and we will because of him in us. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you can't obey this charge to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of Christ because you don't know Christ. You've never relinquished the control of your life and turned from trusting in yourself and the deceitfulness of sin and turned and trusted in Jesus Christ for what he did for you on the cross. So you may be forgiven, be given a new heart that wants to please him, giving the power to actually live in a manner worthy of the gospel and adorn the gospel. So I urge you, if you've never done that this morning, that you return from trusting in yourself and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that you too might live in the gospel and for the gospel let's pray Lord thank you so much for your word Lord thank you for the clear call it's just one thing and we try to make things way too complicated often Lord I know I do and yet you through Paul just boiled it down to this one thing and Lord I would pray for the people here that know you that you would empower them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus at all times by your grace we pray this in Jesus name amen